T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Tuesday, December 5th, 2017. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we'll be speaking to Hillvet's founder and CEO, Justin Brown, as we do every Tuesday about the latest emanating from Capitol Hill and beyond as we near the end of the 2017 legislative year. Also going to talk to him about some openings in the highly sought after Hillvet's fellowship program and his trip to the Boulder Crest Retreat West grand opening out in Arizona. And then we'll speak with Team Afghan Power President John Gerlaw. John is a veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan who's now heading up a team working to bring reliable electricity to the Afghan people. We'll talk to him about the why and more importantly, the how they plan to do this. All of that and more on the way for this Tuesday edition of your favorite daily veteran-focused radio program. I think that has to be true, Jake. I think that if someone has another favorite daily veteran radio show, if they ever say that, that's a liar that you're talking to right there. They must be. We're kind of the only game in town, people. The only game in the nation, I would say. And that's a good thing that we have uh, the market cornered in essence. I mean, there's some good podcasts out there that talk about uh, veteran-centric ideas. Some of the VSOs have their own podcasts along with coming on this show. But the fact that we get to every day spend an hour and a half, well, every weekday, spend an hour and a half focusing entirely on veterans' issues, focusing on the things that matter to us, the veterans, and being veterans ourselves. I mean, we're a 26-year E12 if you form us up like Voltron, which, uh, you know. Would be very uncomfortable. Yeah, I I wouldn't enjoy that at all. I mean, it would be, I've got a bad back, and I mean, are you sitting on my shoulders, or am I sitting on your shoulders? Is it a master blaster from beyond Thunderdome situation? I don't know. All I do know is that we have 26 years of experience between us. Each of us was uh, one of those NCO types, as they call them, in every branch other than the Navy. That's a term we didn't use in the Navy. Really? You didn't say non-commissioned officer? No, NCO is not a thing. You're petty officer. That's it. Petty officer, like E4, they're there's delineation E1 through E3. That's a seaman or airman or fireman or constructionman, technically, but the, the seaman level ranks. And then E4 to E6, you're a petty officer. Now, there are different, obvious levels and different responsibilities that come along with those. And then you are a chief once you get to E7, chief, senior chief, master chief, a khaki, as they're called, because they wear khaki uniforms like the uh, officers do. Or at least wasn't wasn't the term petty officer initially like an insult? No, no, it was uh, it was to delineate a difference between someone who had authority granted by the command and someone who had authority granted by the crown, 
when it goes back to the English uh, military. Ah, okay. So the officer was someone who was like, you know, appointed by the government, whereas the petty officer was someone appointed by the officers. So it was a delineation like, yes, this person has authority on the vessel. However, that authority is granted by the captain of the ship, not by some higher power that's off of the ship. Gotcha. There you go. So um, that's the same thing as like a non-commissioned officer, like commissioned officers. They've, that's a whole different ball of wax. Non-commissioned officer means you're held to uh, different standards, essentially. I mean, the UCMJ is different for commissioned and non-commissioned officers. But in the Navy, just because we're different, and it is different. <laughs> I mean, that you know, when you go back to it, Wars have been fought on land and on sea for about as long as human beings have been around. And there are just different terminology, different uh, ways of life that come along with it. But yeah, NCO is a term that a lot of people in the Navy, like those who are on rates that are shipbound for most of their career, that don't see a lot of time like overseas or on shore, that do just constant sea duty, your bosun's mates and people like that. I think that there are some of them who probably aren't really even familiar with the term NCO, like other than maybe seeing it in movies and TVs and stuff like that, TV well, shows and stuff like well, that. Well, they interact with Marines, they would know. Uh, yeah, to an extent, but some of them, that only on uh, certain ships. I mean, the Marines are only on amphibs now, essentially. Oh. They're not, there's really, there's a few Marines that'll be on an aircraft carrier, not many. But uh, unless you're on a large ship, and the majority of our ships are not the big boys. They're small boys and big boys. Big boys are essentially your amphibs, amphibious assault ships, amphibious uh, transport ships, the the different types of um, you know big ships and aircraft carriers, and then everything else, destroyers and frigates and all the rest of them. There's no Marines on board. Oh, those. Yeah. well, learn something new every day. There you go. Yeah, Marines. Uh, you know, they're they're over time they have become much more of a land based organization. They do have their history of. You know, their ties to the Navy and being essentially security on a Navy ship. But now the Navy has their master at arms and the Marines, you know, they were the guys who would climb up into the rigging and shoot over at the other ships like you see in Master and Commander or other movies like that. Uh, the, the video I was just watching, uh, Nick Palmashano from Ranger Up did a Go Army Beat Navy video. Oh, yeah. And in the in it's... Uh, he mentions his son mentions I might want to be a marine, and he says. So let me think this straight. You want to have the same job as the army, but with Vietnam era weapons and vehicles. <laughs> well, there may be some truth to that. However, I'll tell you this: I deployed technically with the army when I went to Afghanistan. I'm pretty sure my M16 that they gave me saw some action in Vietnam. <laughs> like not even not exaggerating. It was an old rifle. Uh, thankfully, I was actually attached to the German army, the Bundeswehr, and they let me have their weaponry, which was a little bit more high speed than what I was given as an individual augmentee for the army. Speaking of Afghanistan, coming up later in the show, John Gerlaw of Team Afghan Power. He's the president of Team Afghan Power. He's going to join us live in studio to talk about their their push to bring reliable electricity to Afghanistan and it's one of those things where if you've been over there, Iraq, Afghanistan, now Iraq had more of an infrastructure than Afghanistan did. Afghanistan is full-blown third world once you get outside of the the cities, essentially, um, and even in the cities. I remember <laughs> we were going with uh, 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 the U.S. ambassador to Germany was in RC North while I was there, and they decided they were going to take him to see one of the projects in Mazari sharif the, the main city near Camp Marmal, the base of RC North. And uh, I was the one who went along with him to take pictures of his visit to this project, which was a school 
specifically a school for girls that they were building on and improving on and and trying to uh, to really make a special place. And they did a pretty good job of it. While we were driving out there, some of the things you see out of the window of your vehicle as you're driving, and these were German Army uh, vehicles. These weren't MRAPs or Humvees. We were literally in Mercedes-Benz up-armored Jeeps, essentially, is, is how I would describe them, flying at about 80 miles an hour through Mazari <laughs> Shreve because you don't slow down when you're on the roads nope. in Afghanistan. So, you know, they would be driving, and if they saw something coming, they'd hit that horn. But you'd look out of the window and see, like, cars being pulled by horses. That was something that I saw a few times. Yeah, seen that. Kids uh, selling things out of the trunk of a car, and the trunk was propped up by a like a, a stick, like a big stick holding it up. Old Russian cars, like Ladas, if you're familiar with Russian vehicles, a lot of Ladas over there because Russian occupation of Afghanistan that lasted until the uh, the 1980s. You know, there, there was, uh, or it took place, I should say, in the 70s through to the 80s. There's, um, it, it was just fascinating to see that a lot of places didn't appear to have electricity. And then you go out to these small towns around the region. And, and because of my job, listen, I had the coolest job in the military while I was in Jake knows it. He yeah. did a few jobs and yeah, uh, I, I, I wish I had been able to deploy as a broadcast journalist. Yeah. I, and, and in the Navy, you are there, the different, another difference between the Navy and the other services when you go to school for uh, print journalism and broadcast journalism in the Navy, it's the same thing. You go to both. Whereas you only got to go to one, right? You didn't right. get to go to the print journalism one. Because of that, anytime a job opens up in the Navy where it's either print journalism, broadcast journalism, you have the capability to go. So my job in Afghanistan was uh, print, photo, and video. I wasn't doing any uh, live broadcasting like this until... I got there and Radio Andernacht, the German army radio, found out like, oh, you have a history in broadcasting on the radio? Would you like to come and do a show with us? So every week that I wasn't outside the wire, Friday nights from, uh, I think it was from 8 to 9 p.m., the American Hour with Eric Dame. So I've actually, I've been live on <laughs> the air. Representing America. Yeah, live on the air in Afghanistan and the, the Radio Andernacht because of how spread apart the region was and how difficult it would be with the mountains for signals to get someplace. They could power up the signal as high as they wanted. They would burn CDs of their shows and uh, they burned CDs of like the American hour and sent it around to all the little uh, outposts. It was pretty cool. But uh, anyway, getting out to those little towns around the region. And I wonder if you saw much of this in Iraq as well in Afghanistan, like uh, generators, that's all that they would yep. have for mm -hmm. power. There was a little village called uh, Hazara Kala, and I remember it specifically because a bunch of my pictures taken there have been used by the Army and 10th Mountain Division and a bunch of other people um, to kind of illustrate the Army's role in Afghanistan, and it was a weird town. I called it Whoville because when we got there, there were these trees that they had clipped off because it was the winter times. So they clipped the branches off. I still don't know what kind of trees they were. They all moved like a Dr. Seuss tree. <laughs> they were just weird. There was a um, a mill. There was a little river that ran through the town, and there was a mill, uh, and that mill was operated by a man who looked like an elf and wore a red ski suit with like a pointy top. Uh, no, really? Oh, yeah. It was the strangest little town uh, I've ever been to, and... We were there to help them because the river was causing erosion and the riverbank was starting to get closer and closer to uh, some domiciles where some people lived in Hazarakala. 
So we, I'm pretty sure it was Cesar Alcala. I got to look that up if I'm mixing up the places. But anyway, listen, if you Google Eric Dame and you'll see pictures uh, from when I was in Afghanistan, I think the first one that comes up is from uh, whatever town this was. And I'm pretty sure it was Cesar Alcala. I'm going to try to do it right now. The town didn't have any sort of electricity. There's no power lines going anywhere. In fact, the only place that I saw a power plant was in the town of Polikamri, which is actually a city. It was a fairly fairly major place uh, in Afghanistan, Polikamri. And, you know, we uh, we, we went there and I, I saw that there was a power place, but then the only power lines I saw were like in the city. There wasn't anything going to any of the outskirts, the towns outside. So, you know, it's a... Um, uh, it's it's an important thing that Team Afghan Power is doing, and I'm really interested Absolutely. in talking to John about not the why. I think most of us can probably guess why. And you know what? I just Googled myself. Everything that comes up now is connecting vets. There's none of my old military <laughs> stuff. Well, just shows you what being on, a, being on a live radio broadcast and a great website like ConnectingVets.com will do. Um, anyway, so not so much the the why, but the how how they plan to do this and they do have a plan i believe so we're going to talk to john about that and we're going to see i would exactly, hope they uh, have a plan yeah, not just oh, then we're, yeah we're going to buy them a bunch of generators <laughs> and wish them the best we're going to buy uh some batteries a whole bunch of batteries <laughs> and we're going to uh them big old d cells they'll be fine yeah everything will be okay so we're going to uh we're going to talk to him about that and i mentioned i just mentioned the 10th Mountain Division. All right. Uh, bu- 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 yeah, Hazarakala. I was right. So there's a picture. Google Eric Dame Hazarakala. H-A-Z-A-R-A is all you need to do, and you'll see a picture of uh, one of the 10th Mountain Divisions, st- Division soldiers standing watch over the little river that went down to the mill where the little elf person worked in Whoville. And you can see the trees and understand why I called it that. Um, was oh, there a Lorax? Did he speak for the trees? There were these kids that had very weird shapes to them. like They were like very short and squat, so maybe they were Loraxes. I don't know. Um, it appears that someone's trying to sell my photo, though. I don't know if I'm cool with that. That's the first website that comes up with it on there. Eh, anyway, um, 10th Mountain Division, who were the largest U.S. command, so therefore technically were in charge of me uh, in Afghanistan, although I didn't work for them. I worked, as I mentioned, for the Germans who actually ran RC North. 10th Mountain Division is in the news because... The Army football uniforms have mm-hmm. been revealed, and they hope to be climbing to glory. It's a reference to 10th Mountain Division's uh, catchphrase, ah, climbing ah, to glory. Ah. Yeah. So uh, it, they basically are 10th Mountain Division uniforms. What did you think of those uniforms when you saw them, Jake? I really like them. I mean, uh, I'm glad the 10th Mountain, I actually worked for 10th Mountain during my first deployment because, well, long story, long story, so don't even worry about it. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> my stories aren't interesting. No. Uh, but I'm glad that the uh, 10th Mountain's getting some recognition. I'm glad they put that on there. I don't know if this is a thing like they rotate it or something like that. I think they just choose something new every year, like a new thing to base it on. It's not always a unit. It can be, um, well, maybe it is in the Army. I know in the Navy, it just kind of goes, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a little different because with the Navy, the ships are ships and yeah, they have slightly different logos or like the USS Saipan was different than the, uh, the, what was it? Tarawa? I guess we were Tarawa class. I think, boy, if I'm getting that one wrong, people are going to be like, <laughs> and I'm going to say, oh, I don't care. I didn't really like being on the Saipan, but, um, you know, like the, the ball caps were different, but other than that, it's the same thing. Like there's no difference. They have the same job. Um, so the Navy kind of goes with more, they, they've tended to go with more generic, uh, feel. To it, yeah. Didn't um, aren't they based on the Blue Angels this, this year? year? They are, and that's one of our unique units that it's like 
this unit has that specific job and only that job. Uh, you could look at the SEAL teams as something like that. EOD, SWIC is one that's very unique to the Navy. That's the uh, Special Warcraft Combatant Crew. Uh, they're the ones who basically drive those really fast boats that either deliver SEALs or provide fire support to SEALs or you know, do their own thing while going up rivers and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty good-looking uniform, I thought. Uh, there are some people out there who would say it doesn't matter what uniform they're wearing on the field. I mean, they're just going to look pretty getting beaten by the Navy. Yeah, yeah. This, they, there, hey. there, there is a serious rift in between me and my military friends in that, you know, you got the Air Force and the Army on one side, you got the Navy and the Marine Corps on the other side, and the Coast Guard's in the middle just screaming, can't we all just get along? Yeah, and for me, here's how I always look at the Army Navy football game. It's like kind of, kind of funny, and you can say like you can, I can poke fun at you if the Navy wins. I have zero ties yeah. to the Naval Academy, and the I wasn't an officer, I wasn't an academy guy. Uh, it's really more just to be able to poke some fun at your friends. But I, you know, it, it's great when they do well. I like seeing the service academies do well in athletics because it typically means that they are doing something that they shouldn't be able to do with the type of athletes that they're allowed to recruit. They're not allowed to recruit the six foot seven, 350 pound kid who barely graduated from high school. These are supposed to be top performers academically and athletically. There have been some questions about that. over. Yeah. The years. I wrote that article. I wrote about uh, the former instructor that wrote a letter yeah. saying that the army was lowering standards to let better football players in. This was about the, uh, the around the time of the Spencer Rapone debacle yes. a couple months ago. Uh, for those who recall or don't recall, I should say Spencer Rapone was uh, at some point a member of the 3rd Battalion of the 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, he was removed for standards from that Ranger Regiment, which we broke the news of here on Connecting Vets. How did we get that news? Well, we're connected to the veterans. That's what we do. So we reached out to some of our Army Ranger uh, Battalion friends and asked them and got the uh, got the good gouge, as they say, on Spencer uh, the communist. And that's why he was in the news because at his West Point graduation, he's wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt under his uniform. He's got written inside of his cap, communism will win or whatever. Yeah. And uh, those are the caps that I believe when they graduate, they throw up and then the kids come down. So some kid found a hat that said communism will win inside of it. Oh, so, great. Yeah. Really good stuff with old Spencer a poem, but one of his professors who uh, appears to be one of the hard butts of the university, he was one of those guys we actually called Spencer Opone out on the stuff he was doing because we found out later on there's a whole bunch of stuff he wasn't supposed to be doing that he was doing at the academy. That same officer wrote uh, an open letter essentially to the academy. And one of the things that he points out in it is he says because they got beaten for what was it like 39 years in a row by the Navy or something, something like, like that? that. I think it was like, yeah, something I think like the that. last time the Army won before last year was like 90s. 1890s yeah yeah yeah, yeah 1890s, a little bit, little yeah, bit, sure. bit before world war one uh, about yeah. 20 years before so um he said that because of their struggles and how that looks with uh you know the just the optics of it that they had lowered standards and they had allowed people to get into west point who had no business being there because they wanted them on the football team or they wanted them on the basketball court you know things like that so um yeah it's it's a question that you have but on, in football only so much you can do i mean they are limited to the size that they can accept even to get on the field so yep. even if they're lowering standards a little bit they're not lowering them too much because you don't see any six foot eight 
six foot nine, three hundred and fifty pound offensive lineman. It's just not what they do. And over the years, uh, what's been cool to watch is is particularly with Navy how they run like this triple option, double wishbone. They run an offense from the early part of the twentieth century, <laughs> and nobody knows what to do against it because. Anyone who knew how to ran a, run a defense against it has been dead for 75 yeah. years. So, you know, it's one of those things where the Navy has found success, gone to a lot of bowl games. Uh, I think they're bowl eligible again this year. Not 100%. Yeah, well, it, it's a, to me, it's a good thing. I like rooting for the underdog uh, because, like, if you don't know, in Texas, there's a big, the big rivalry is University of Texas and Texas A&M. That's the big rivalry. Right. And then and Texas Tech is like a third wheel. Every exact, once in a while, they're kind of good. Exactly. I mean, the big thing is always between UT and AM. And AM traditionally would was usually the losing team. They were the underdog. And I like rooting for the underdog. So it kind of works for me that the Army is the underdog. Yeah. Well, this year, I don't know. I, I, I guess they are. I mean, what's the betting line? Because this game is coming up on Saturday. I'm going to look up Army, Navy, odds and let's see what comes up because didn't uh, the army just beat someone that was like a team that was really good uh, a, a friend of mine posted that he posted that since army beat this team maybe they'll be able to actually survive losing it could be could be but the Na- navy's also had some wins against some good teams i mean navy was ranked in the top 25 at one point this year they were one of those good teams and then they had a, uh, a little bit of a bad run there and lost some games so last year was the first time that the Army had won in 14 years. So dating back, that was 2016. Dating back to 2002, yep. they hadn't won. Uh, they won 21-17, to 17, and this is the 118th time that they will meet. And the midshipmen opened in Vegas as 3.5-point favorites. So the Navy is favored to win by more than a field goal, less than a touchdown, essentially. So, um, you know, if that, what really that tells you when, when, for those who aren't, uh, betters, if you're a 3.5 point favorite, that means Vegas is betting that the game is going to be decided by three points. Cause if it's okay, if you bet that I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in football, right. You can score three points with a field goal, field goal. six with a touchdown, seven with the extra point eight with the two-point conversion. So you either score eight or three or two on the rare occasion of a safety, but they tend to put that .5 point as a line of demarcation. So if you want to bet on Navy to win, you have to bet that they will win by four points or more. If you bet that they win by a field goal, which Vegas predicts is exactly what's going to happen, uh, then you can't do that. So you would bet on, if you think Navy's going to win by a field goal, you'd have to bet on Army to win any money. Essentially, is what it comes down to. But yeah, Navy a slight favorite. I mean, three point five points in college football—that's that's not huge. That's not like great team versus bad team because there are games where Alabama or Auburn or Georgia, Ohio State, Florida teams like that will be forty point favorites early in the season against teams that are nowhere near as good as them, and they'll be fifteen twenty point favorites against teams that are pretty good. So this has been. Um, an interesting season for them. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. The Knights this year won six games in a row at one point. This is the Army Black Knights. Before they fell three weeks ago in their last game to North Texas, 52-49. to 49. North Texas is one of those college football teams that's weirdly good every once in a while just because there's a lot of people in Texas who are really good at football that yeah. don't want to leave the state. You know, Texas, California, Florida, those are the three football hotbeds. Oh, and Alabama, can't forget them. Um, let's see. So the Navy midshipmen, uh, they've lost some games, but they have lost games to 
good teams. Okay. Uh, Central Florida, Memphis, Notre Dame, Houston. I mean, th- those are very good teams, including Central Florida, who a lot of people say should be in the discussion for the national championship uh, playoff because they haven't lost to anybody yet. And in two of those games, Houston and Navy, their last two games, they actually led 14 to 7 in the third quarter against Houston, but gave up the last 17 points of the game. So that was uh, not a good finish. And they were ahead of Notre Dame 17 to 10 in the third quarter before giving up the last 14 (laughs) points of the game. So they've had a problem with finishing out games, but overall, uh, their strength of schedule is a little bit, a little bit tougher than Army's. And I'd say they performed pretty well against it. But it'll be interesting to see. And again, it's like bragging rights, but just like all college sports. Unless it's the school that you went to, and even then, unless it's a team that you played on, like I went to Hofstra University. We don't have a football team. We do have a basketball team. I can be like, yeah, our team beat you. I never played basketball for Hofstra University. I never even picked up a basketball while at Hofstra University. I didn't go to college, but I know that because of of my family history, I root for A&M because my dad and my aunt went there, and I root for Ole Miss because my sister played softball there. Those are my two teams. It's like growing up in Connecticut. My family are like University of Connecticut fans. It's the big school. There are a bunch more schools, private and, uh, and public in the state. Both of my parents went to Central Connecticut State, which is not the University of Connecticut. It's part of the state uh, university system, but they like root for the Yukon Huskies. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not your school, but it's it's kind of a local thing. And again, a little, little local pride and bragging rights. I think as long as you keep in mind that it's all in fun, you're good to go. The people yep. that take it too seriously and start crying about the football team or basketball team or whoever losing let's settle down about that yeah unless you're on the field then okay a a tear or two is okay speaking of tears hopefully he won't reduce us to them but justin brown of hill vets is going to be live in studios in just a few moments morning briefing back after this helping military veterans stay connected we make it easy we're cbs radio's connectingvets.com connecting vets every day online and all over social media facebook youtube instagram and twitter at connecting vets Welcome back to the morning briefing for Tuesday, December 5th, 2017. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer, and ConnectingVets.com is your website. And we mean that. Created by veterans, for veterans, and focused on that singular veteran experience. We're keeping an eye on the news, info, and benefits that you need to be aware of and to find out about them you can visit our website connectingvets.com for stories on oh i don't know how about the tricare changes that are going to affect a couple million retirees on january 1st did you know about those if the answer to that question is no the vfw says you're not alone their survey says over half of all respondees to a survey on tricare changes had no idea of any changes coming even more than that There were fewer and fewer people who knew about the details, including, let's like this one, for example. If you're a retiree with TRICARE Prime, your co-pays are going up as of January 1st. You know how many people who were uh, eligible for TRICARE Prime knew about that, according to the survey? About 12%, just over 1 in 10. Stories like that. How about how to get your new VA ID card? That and so much more can be found at ConnectingVets.com. And the best way to be kept abreast on the latest and greatest of what we are doing at the website, 
is to follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We get to talk to a lot of fascinating people about a lot of fascinating things. And our next guest, he's no exception. He's a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, and he's a man that's trying to do something pretty special in a place that I'm fairly familiar with, that being Afghanistan. He is John Gerlaw, and he is the president of Team Afghan Power. John, good morning, and welcome to The Morning Briefing. Good morning, Eric. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure having you here. And before we talk about Team Afghan Power and this amazing project that you guys are starting to get off the ground, let's just talk about you a little bit and about your background. So as I mentioned, Marine Corps, you're one of those guys. Sure enough. When did you join the Marine Corps, and what did you do while you were in? Well, I was in college, and I went into the platoon leadership class program, which is a commissioning source, and uh, uh, graduated in 76, was commissioned. I was in the reserves for two years, and then I got a regular commission in 78. I did 10 years. I was a tanker, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, It got me uh, a lot of training and a lot of life experience that I wouldn't have had otherwise, so uh, I was glad for it. I uh, got a tank company, got to go to deploy to Korea, um, I'm thinking a lot about those folks over there now. Uh, they, they have a tough job and, uh, yeah. um, it's, it's not an easy thing. So, uh, anyway, I got out and, uh, became a civil servant. I worked in the Pentagon and, uh, that's where I was when, uh, the war started. Now you have a couple things in common with our producer, super producer, Jake Hughes. He was an army tanker and he was also stationed in Korea. So those two things in common. Now you became a civil servant when you got out and let's get to that point. You served for 10 years in the Corps and think back to that transition period for you, leaving the Marine Corps. What was that like for you? And what do you remember most about going from John the Marine to John the civilian? It was very hard. Uh, it was mostly self-inflicted, uh, the, the, hard, <laughs> the hard part. Um, I, I didn't have a plan when I got out. And uh, I kind of uh, was, I was finishing graduate school and uh, I was down in Tampa. My last duty station was Central Command. And uh, I was a captain and, you, you know, you, you're, you're not going to get uh, work in the defense industry, which is really all I knew. So I uh, packed up, went up to uh, Washington, D.C., lived with my brother for a while in his basement. Uh, a couple of Marines threw their arms around me and uh, led me through the, uh, the interview process, the resume writing process. And uh, if it hadn't been for them, uh, one in particular, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Brown, Silver Star winner from Vietnam. Wow. Uh, I probably wouldn't have uh, gotten the great jobs I got, but I ended up working in the Pentagon after a short stint as a defense contractor. And uh, it was just uh, really quite a great experience after that. But it was a tough transition. You know, we hear people talk about these self-inflicted wounds, essentially, of transitioning and like, oh boy, I guess I just didn't spend enough time getting ready. Thinking back to that period when you get out, late 80s, so uh, quite a while ago now, mm-hmm. what's the one thing that you recall that you you wish you'd known ahead of time that you could pass on to people who may be going through that transition process now, struggling with it, or those who are serving and coming up on that time to either retire or get out of the service or whatever? What's the one thing that you wish you'd known before you left the Corps? I think uh, organizing your life for uh, getting out and having a block period of time where you're going to be in a very different lifestyle with a very different economic situation would have been, I would have laid plans better for that. Um, And the other was uh, just uh, the the big question that we all have when we do a a career transition is, what do I really want to do? What do I really want to be when I grow up? And uh, there's no question coming out of the service is a very different experience being in the civilian world. Uh, my first job as a civil servant, I'd come in very early in the morning. I was working on the Saudi Marine Force program as a, um, as a program manager. And uh, uh, a lot of the civil servants I worked with, um, they, they almost were uncomfortable with the hours I was working, which I didn't even give a, a second thought to. Didn't charge overtime or anything. It was just, you know, we're in a different time zone. We need to come in early so these guys are awake and, you know, get the work done. And then in the evening, there was a lot to do. And uh, 
luckily I was working around the Marines headquarters, Marine Corps when I was doing it. So they were like, yeah, keep going. You're doing a great job. So that, that worked out for me. When you talk about what you wanted to do and you did end up, as you said, becoming a civil servant, working at the Pentagon, uh, even though you left the Marine Corps, kind of staying in touch with the military, obviously very closely there. And during that time, if I understand correctly, you were able to visit places like Iraq, places like Afghanistan. So during your time working in that job field, working in that defense field as a civilian, uh, what did you see and what did you learn uh, during your time working those jobs? I guess I learned uh, how difficult it is to do things, really big things, uh, in an organization that's as large as the Pentagon. Mm. Um, if you have a good idea, um, and or, or you're put on a project that has an end game. There's actually, a, in, in my assessment, a, a fairly small possibility uh, that that'll ever become anything that's really meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, I had two notable exceptions. One was the, the Saudi Marine Corps program I already mentioned, and the other was Plan Columbia. Uh, I came in to that program uh, a year after it was started, and uh, it followed it for four years. Worked on it for four years, and uh, it was a, a moderate success. And uh, so that was an example, but by and large, it's a, uh, it's a massive bureaucracy, no matter how many uh, reorganizations they do or how much streamlining they do. And uh, you've got to have a lot of patience. You, you learn strategic patience in a job like that. I can imagine. <laughs> you, know, you know, when we think about the bureaucracy that we see when we're serving in the military, think about, I, I always think about the fact that the level of bureaucracy when dealing with the bureaucrats on a day-to-day basis instead of where the rubber meets road will be uh, even greater than that. Is that what your experience was? It it is. uh, I guess my advice to people transitioning into young vets is um, know the rules and and they are knowable and know what your options are. Um, I had an enduring pay problem after I got back from Iraq and uh, I've been working with my my legislator, my uh, national legislator, my uh, representative. Um, it was something I was in the service I never would have thought to do, but, uh, as a civilian, those options are open to you. So, and, and, you know, everything from your show for sources of information to, uh, uh, you know, all the veterans support groups uh, are out there. So, um, there's a lot of options now. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. When you went over to Iraq, and we're speaking with John Gerlaw, he is the president of Team Afghan Power, and don't worry, we're going to get to Afghanistan soon. You go over to Iraq, you're the chief of governance for the Al-Ambar Provincial Reconstruction Team, the PRTs, which began uh, kind of first in Iraq, and then that program would kind of move over to Afghanistan uh, from there. When you were working over in Iraq and seeing what was going on on the ground there, seeing the infrastructure and you know, provincial reconstruction teams, that's kind of their job to build up these uh, provinces and get them going in the direction they need to be. What were some of the big struggles that you had in Al-Ambar? You know, uh, it's a funny thing. Um, we arrived and uh, a peace had broken out. The Sunni uh, <laughs> sheikhs had, uh, had stood up against Al-Qaeda and right. had thrown them out. Uh, we had a uh, Marine expeditionary force uh, headed up by some brilliant men, one of whom was a one-star general at that time, John Allen, who became four-star right. general, uh, commander of, uh, of uh, NATO ISAF in Afghanistan later. Uh, and we had a wonderful team of men and women, but the challenges were sort of inside the wire. Uh, none of us had worked together. Uh, we had the military-civilian, you know, the, the, the natural different focal points that caused us at times to have a little bit of friction. Um, and, uh, the folks that were there on the team, the civilians like myself were volunteers and had never done that kind of work before. So, you know, other than that, we were, uh, we were a high speed organization. So we all laughed a bit about it in the beginning and then, uh, set about doing the very best we could. The good news was, was that the, uh, the leadership of, uh, Ramadi that was in Ramadi, who was the, the head of all of, uh, Alambar province, 
understood the challenges that we were facing. Mm. They had worked with Americans for a while, and uh, they were extremely helpful and very cooperative. Um, so m- interestingly, a lot of our help came from outside the wire. And um, by the end of the year, uh, I would say that we uh, had had succeeded. We also had great continuity. Our, um, our uh, pr- provincial reconstruction team team leader, uh, Jim Soriano, had been there a year and stayed for an additional four after I left. So uh, unlike a lot of the uh, organizations you see overseas where they have uh, three months, six months, one year, you know, in and out, you're just learning your job before you leave. Uh, this gent uh, who ran our team uh, actually had a lot of time on the ground. He spoke uh, Arabic too. That was helpful. Mm. So all those things came together. But I would say our biggest challenge was just learning who we were, what our skills were, and working together in the beginning. Right. And and finding uh, such a different time for the province and for, I mean, Ramadi, the Battle of Ramadi is legendary for, Indeed. I mean, SEAL Team 3. We just talked to Mark Lee's mother, uh, Gold Star mother, Debbie Lee. That's where um, task, task Unit uh, Bruiser, I believe they were called, with Jocko Will and Chris Kyle, Mark Lee, and the rest of their team. I mean, saw some of the heaviest fighting that we've seen in all of Iraq and seeing the difference just a few years later, I'm sure, was was staggering for you. And, of course, later you would go on to Afghanistan, which is I think in the eyes of people who haven't deployed to either place, uh, kind of similar to Iraq, but those mm-hmm. of us who have been to Afghanistan and or Iraq know there are a lot of differences between those two places. Uh, geographically, there are a lot of differences. Well, for, for one, sure. Afghanistan's not in the Middle East. I keep having to tell people about that. It's, it's not in the Middle East, not part of that whole thing. And and uh, culturally, there are a lot of differences over there. It, it's an entirely different place, different languages, different cultures that you're dealing with. But you were uh, advising on the development of the Afghan National Security Forces, including the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police, so ANA and AMP is what we call those. Um, tell me about your your impressions of Afghanistan when you get there, particularly as someone who had already spent time in, in Iraq and dealing with the PRT there. Sure. Well, uh, actually, my majority time in uh, Afghanistan, I was uh, advising the uh, Marine uh, Regimental Combat Team down in... Uh, Camp, Helmand Province, Camp, yeah. Right, Camp Wire down in Helmand. And... Uh, when I say advising, we, we partnered on things that were non-military so that they could provide the resources that we needed, for example, opening schools and things like that. Right. But I would say the principal difference between Iraq and Afghanistan was is that Iraq had real infrastructure. Right. Right? In Ramadi, there were things you would recognize, as, you know, buildings, you know, all kinds of roads, streets, streetlights and things. They were all torn up when we were there, but they were there. Um, and in a way, it made it more miserable because you saw what it could have been uh, and what it was, you know, when, when we arrived, it was really uh, bombed out. Um, Afghanistan, where I was, which is, you know, down in the south in the, uh, in the deserts of uh, southern Helmand, uh, had none of that. Um, the, the most they had were uh, really buildings made of mud brick yep. and uh, dirt roads, very dusty dirt roads. And then uh, in, the, in the town of Marja, they had a canal system that we had built for them in the 50s and 60s to do irrigation, which was a very complicated and, and a, a beautiful structure. It was quite, quite worn out when we saw it, and uh, we put a lot of work into fixing it up for them. But, um, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was very uh, different structurally, and the principal difference is is that Iraq has nat- natural resources, and yeah. Afghanistan has some, but they're a long way from being tapped. They do, and and when we talk about uh, like uh, the 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 elements that essentially make batteries for computers, like nickel and things like that, cadmium and th- other lithium, other sorts yeah. of lithium, yeah, mm-hmm. minerals that are in Afghanistan. But uh, good luck getting to them at this point. It's uh, it's going to be a while before that that becomes a source of income for them, if ever. And that's something that I, I was up in northern Afghanistan and I saw the same thing. Jake and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, Iraq, while its infrastructure took some big hits during the conflict there, still had an infrastructure, whereas in Afghanistan, 
if you're in the major cities, okay, you're, there's going to be a, a power grid. There are going to be sewage in some places, working sewage. You get a few minutes outside of those cities, and you're going to see, as you said, the mud huts. And I was talking with Jake earlier about a little town that I visited with 10th Mountain Division uh, in my job there for RC North Public Affairs, taking photos and documenting, uh, where we were doing a public relations thing, you know, kind of uh, putting up some barriers to help uh, stop some erosion. We get to this town. There is a mill that is operated by the little stream that ran through there. No electricity to that. You get to the town, and one of the things that, that kind of stuck out to me was how quiet it was during the day. There was no, you know, there was no, there wasn't anything. There wasn't any sound coming out other than the voices of people, the wind coming off the mountains. And I started realizing that part of that was because there's no electricity here. There's not going to be any machinery operating. There's not going to be anything like that. They have generators for nighttime to keep them warm and get, you know, light in at the nighttime. But infrastructure is non-existent outside of the major cities in Afghanistan. And even if you go into those major cities outside of Kabul, whether you're in Mazari Sharif up where I was, um, Maimana, Faizabad, any place up in the north, there is a, a lack of infrastructure even in the main population centers. So that's something that it seems like, seems to me, fixing that would be very beneficial to the people of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And that's what Team Afghan Power is about in part. So tell us a little bit about Team Afghan Power and where the idea came from. Well, you uh, you hit on it exactly. Uh, we came back from our uh, tour. We, uh, Marine friends of mine and I and some civilians I'd worked with, uh, in uh, we came back from our tour in 2010 from uh, Hellman. And uh, I went off to teach at graduate school at National Fence University, and it gave me time to read and think and do some research on the, uh, the idea of what, what could we bring uh, to them and at what level. Uh, mo- so much of our focus in Afghanistan up till then had been at the national level, you know, pouring resources into the army, right. the, you know, the police, the, uh, the government, uh, rebuilding buildings, uh, everything, furniture, you know, all those kinds of things in the major cities, but particularly in Kabul. Um, but down in the villages seemed to be where the battle was being fought. As, oh, yeah. as, as you know, that's where the entry point is, you know, for the Taliban, that's where they do their recruiting. And uh, we kind of hit upon just an idea, which probably wasn't very original, but for us, you know, it, 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 was, it was vividly illustrated by our experience over there, that it was really where, it was the villages where we were going to win or lose over there. Right. And so then we started thinking about, well, what, what realistically could we bring that would make a universal change to their, to their lifestyle? You, know, you build a road, and in a couple of years, if it isn't maintained, it's full of potholes and it's falling apart. Oh, yeah. Uh, the same thing with a, a lot of different types of infrastructure. Uh, and we started looking at renewable energy because we had a guy that was into that uh, in our group. And uh, it really sparked the idea, no pun intended, that if we brought a very robust, uh, simple grid system to villages and it was self-sustaining in that you you know set it up, kind of armor it a little bit, harden it to make sure folks aren't you know pulling things out of it and you know taking them off for other uses and uh, walk away from it, um, the thing would generate enough power that people would be pleased with it, and perhaps they'd get some microenterprise going. So we spent about a year doing a lot of reading and research on that and decided that it was something that was doable. And so that began the, uh, the Team Afghan Power concept, and uh, we've been working on it ever since. We've been on it now for about uh, close to two years, and uh, we're just getting our uh, IRS certification. We're getting, we've already got registered with the state of Virginia as a nonprofit and uh, pretty shortly in uh, 2018, we'll be accepting donations, and uh, we'll be going out to the larger donors, uh, Gates Foundation, folks like that, wow. and uh, getting getting money. We have a site survey scheduled in uh, in April. We'll do a technical assessment of a village that we've uh, we settled on in the Panjshir Valley. We went to Panjshir because the risk is pretty low, as you know. Panjshir and Bami on those two provinces have uh, very low levels of violence. In fact, uh, Panjshir has actually been nearly violence free the, free the entire war, including the period that the uh, Russians uh, occupied uh, Afghanistan. Right. 
And uh, so a small village there, very cooperative population, uh, lots and lots of natural resources, including massive river, 300 days of sunlight a year, and a huge amount of wind. So if we brought those three uh, renewable elements together, we could probably power a village with a reasonable amount of uh, power to give them microenterprise capacity. What are some of the uh, roadblocks, essentially, to getting this done in Afghanistan on a larger scale? I mean, we're, we're going to start off from what you're saying, a little bit smaller scale in some of these smaller villages, smaller areas, and it's important to help those out. As you said, when you win those villages, that's where you win uh, Afghanistan, because as I've talked about on this show, from my perspective and my experience, the Afghan national identity is kind of not really a thing. It's your tribal identity. It's your regional identity. It's your village. The national identity for them is, you know, sixth or seventh down the line as far as who they identify with. So, you know, dealing with it on that national level, uh, that's difficult. But then also, as you said, the natural resources. And I mentioned uh, earlier in the show, the city of Polikamri, where I spent some time, there were uh, uh, a few, there was a PRT in Polikamri, and then there was a German outpost uh, at a crossroads near there heading up to Kunduz as well. That's the only place where I saw any sort of industry. And there was, I believe it was a big power station that we saw there. If it wasn't, certainly looked like an electrical power station that I was familiar with. But right. other than that, they had a big river that was running through Polycomry that allowed them to do that. Didn't see many rivers in many other places. You know, you mm-hmm. get out into the mountains, there's not a lot of natural resources to try and harness there. Are those some of the roadblocks that we face or are there other things in the way? Well, yeah, I mean, it, depending on where you go in Afghanistan, you, you definitely are challenged by uh, doing renewable. W- one good thing is you do have a lot of sunlight in most of the country, so you can go with solar. And in fact, the Afghan government has a national renewable electrification program that uh, the international community helped them develop. They've got funding for it, and they're actually putting in really, really large solar farms. There's a one megawatt uh, solar farm in um, wow. in uh, Bamiyan province. Uh, it's been in, I think, uh, four or five years. And then there's a uh, 10 megawatt uh, project that's down in Kandahar that's being uh, uh, contracted out and, and going to be built. That That's pretty good-sized solar. Um, but again, it's uh, very, very large solar, and it's designed to power, um, uh, you know, large areas that are highly populated. Our program looks at the other end of the uh, continuum, the other end of the scale. Right. We're, we're, we're shooting to find villages that have 300 people in them and uh, provide low levels of electricity for them. The idea is, is that if you can get uh, sewing machines, uh, small uh, cotton gin machines working, you can purify water, you can have lights, you can have uh, refrigeration in a clinic uh, so that folks can keep inoculations there. Uh, uh, you know, vaccinations, all, all those kinds of small things that uh, a small amount of power would bring you. Uh, it also uh, provides for economic development at a very low level. Folks begin to sell things, they begin to trade, they begin to have disposable incomes. And that's absolutely key from all of our, our readings. There's a guy named Hernando de Soto. He had this idea. He did it in Peru during the Shining Path guerrilla period. And uh, he also unraveled their massive bureaucratic uh, processes that no one could no one could get anything done in because they were so, you know, uh, so stoic and kind of Soviet. And uh, he was able to get people to uh, have things like land ownership, accumulate wealth, and those are magic things in uh, in a place where there's mass mass poverty, like there is in Afghanistan. Once you can accumulate uh, wealth and own land, uh, your your day is much brighter. <laughs> your opportunities are much oh, greater. Yeah. So uh, we're we're trying to fit into that uh, that paradigm, into that uh, that uh, that model. Not only are your opportunities greater, I think there's an opportunity for a different focus for a lot of those villages where. I can tell you stories that we go into a village and they're telling us, hey, the guys in the next village are planning to attack you when you get there. 
and we get to that next village. Hey, the guys in that last village you just left, they're planning to attack you when you leave here. It was this this infighting between villages who might be from separate tribes or there was an argument between families, God knows how long ago. Um, and because, again, there was zero disposable income, it's a struggle to get by. They're competing oftentimes with their neighbors for resources. Do you think bringing in something like electricity, as simple as that, can make a change as far as uh, almost the the competitive nature of survival between those villages and, and the kind of combat that we see between them. I, I think it will. It's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all their problems. But uh, the reason we chose Panchir is because, well, because we're new at doing this, uh, we wanted to reduce our risk as much as possible. Typical military thinking, you know, yeah. you try to, try to work <laughs> risk out of the equation as much yep. as you can. And uh, what uh, we noticed was in Panchir, all, it's, it's very uh, um, sort of... Uh, the, the tribal structure is very uniform all the way up the valley. So we're not competing against villages. The only competition would be, why are you doing their village before my village? And our plan is, is to uh, develop, design, and implement, and install, and run grids that connect to each other. Right. Uh, and then the villages can sell power to each other. And in fact, individuals can sell power to each other. So if I've got excess power for the day coming from my solar panels or my windmill, and you need them, I can sell them to you and, and, and vice versa. And it's all done electronically using uh, cell phone apps which they have and they're familiar with over there. So you end up with this uh, micro-enterprise competitive spirit of, right. you know, I'm selling my power, I'm getting money and everything, and it, and it really brings communities closer together. It doesn't, doesn't divide them quite as much. So uh, the model that we're trying to implement, the model that we want to implement, has those as its features, and we hope that that'll be, uh, that'll be a positive thing, that'll be an additive thing. Another issue, and we're speaking with John Gerlow. He's the president of Team Afghan Power, a, a group that is at the ground uh, stages of starting to bring power to some small villages in Afghanistan to try and have a, a lifestyle change over there, a quality of life change for some of the Afghan people. And one of the issues, and we've only got a couple minutes left, but that we've seen in Afghanistan repeatedly is on that national level, money coming into Afghanistan that never quite made it out of the hands of the people that it originally went into. Do you think doing this at kind of the grassroots way of going directly into those villages is a way of avoiding that corruption and graft that we've seen at the top levels of national government there? Well, I think it is. And I would also offer that the, the levels of graft and corruption have changed dramatically for the good. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, now the, the uh, World Bank runs the National Trust Fund for Afghanistan. So mm. you have a very, I'll, I'll call it an intrusive presence yeah. by Western trained bureaucrats who oversee that. Uh, they meter out the money to the uh, uh, to the ministries on a budget, and the, the ministries who uh, fail to obligate all their funds for the year, they actually turn the money back in. So they are, unfortunately, because the bureaucratic uh, structures are so immature, they turn money back in every year, which is a weird thing if you think about it. Yeah. Because they've mean, always been, you know, so hard up for cash. Yeah. And we um, have our, our, you know, our budgets every fiscal year. You remember being in the military, like, hey, fiscal year's coming to an end. Get rid of that money. We're not spending it. it back That's in. exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So uh, they're there. But it's a, it's a better situation than you might think. Uh, also, I would point out that the Afghan government is uh, splitting uh, the bill with us. So they're going to pay for half the grid. Oh, which wow. Is, which is a good thing. So they have, they have skin in the game. Very cool. Now, John, if people want to find out more about Team Afghan Power, how can they go about doing that and asking any questions of you and finding out the information? Where do they go for that? Sure. They go to our website, which is www.teamafghanpower.com. And on that website is all the contact information they need. And we would love to uh, have folks to hear from folks about this. And are you looking for any sort of like volunteers or people that have been there? <laughs> we we are indeed. We're looking for <laughs> vets who want to help us out. We need all the help we can get. So uh, get on our website and contact us and uh, we'll hook you up. 
You've been listening to The Morning Briefing, and we've been speaking with John Gerlaw, president of Team Afghan Power, working to bring electricity to the Afghan people. Our thanks to him and to Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hill Vets. Another great Tuesday in the books. That means Wednesday's next. See ya. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.